Hey everybody, this is your host, Matt Castellini, and welcome to Chicago Capital. We have a great episode lined up today, but before that, a word from our sponsors, World Business Chicago. In 2021 alone, local founders have raised more than $5 billion in VC dollars, making Chicago a national destination for founders, investors, and innovators. As the city of Chicago's economic development organization, World Business Chicago drives growth and opportunity for our local tech economy and innovation ecosystem through its flagship programs such as the Chicago Venture Summit, Startup Chicago, Think Chicago, and Venture Engine. Learn more via worldbusinesschicago.com. Chris, thank you so much for hopping on Chicago Capital. It's a true pleasure to have you here. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate it. This is going to be a lot of fun. It's actually funny. I think we're recording this episode only a few blocks away from where you went to high school. Did you go to Latin School Chicago? I actually went there till third grade. I went to Royce Moore uh, after that until until high school. But yes, I, I went to school uh, Latin. Um, my early my early years and my wife uh, was a lifer at Latin as well. Got it. Okay, interesting. All right, full circle. There you go. There you go. Um, I think we'd love to hear about your background post Latin, post post third grade. We could just uh, we could start from there, and uh, and uh, would love to hear how you got into startups, how you got into investing. Um, we'd just love to walk through the background. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a, a windy background. Um, uh, so I guess to bring it back to that area, um, my very first serious entrepreneurial experience was, uh, my father initially forcing me and then me getting really excited about, uh, doing a really professional, uh, lemonade stand when I was nine years old in front of our house at the old town art fair. Uh, so that's just down, that's just north of where um, Latin is. And I did that for four summers. And it was a really, I, I actually gave a talk at Thunderbird, which is an international business school in Arizona, about uh, how you can look at business through the eyes of a child creating a lemonade stand. And I walked through everything from business development to marketing to product development. And it was, um, it was a really fun sort of way to reflect on that. But that was sort of like very, very early seeds that, that planted, as well as actually seed money. I, I actually made profits from that. I had to pay my parents back for the costs of the lemonade. And we bought Twinkies and stuff at the Hostess um, uh, facility in Chicago. And we'd sell those. And, and the profits that I actually made off of that were sitting in my savings account for a long time. And some of my early angel investments actually have small amounts of that lemonade stand in them, uh, which is kind of funny. Um, but fast forward several years, I uh, went to college in New York at Vassar uh, and uh, very sort of ivory tower pedagogical kind of school, nothing even close to uh, an area of interest that I had, which was computer graphics. Uh, so the summer between my freshman and sophomore year, I, I bought a, a very serious uh, setup to teach myself computer graphics. Uh, I spent five, like pretty strong five figures on this. And, and it was, I probably spent some of my money on that as well. Um, and helped, uh, got some help financing that with my parents as well. And, um, and that really got me cued into uh, sort of the early pieces of my career, which was 
Um, this was in 1990, summer of 1994, um, and I came back to campus fall of 94, and the first time I'd ever seen the web was on Mosaic, my first day back on campus, my sophomore year. Um, not, not the first time I used the internet, but that was the first time I ever, ever saw the web. And that sort of like changed everything for me. And over the next three years while I was in school, I was doing consulting work with fellow students at Vassar, with professors. I was, I think I set up the first ever uh, admissions website at Vassar, like in 96 or something, 95, 96. Um, so I was sort of doing all these projects, graduated from college in 97. And I was actually collaborating with a couple other students that were entrepreneurs came back to Chicago in the summer of 97 and spent a year basically just building websites for friends of friends and friends of parents. And a year later, I moved out west uh, to join my cousin who had taken a company public just prior to that called Sales Logics. He had this idea for an e-commerce platform. And so I moved out there, um, Scottsdale, which is kind of the most unlikely uh, place you can uh, go to build a startup in 1998, but moved out there in 98 and we built one of the first e-commerce platforms. Um, Benchmark led our first round. Bill Gurley joined our board. Uh, it was, and actually nobody knew who Bill Gurley was at the time. In fact, there was another partner that we wanted. Bill Gurley's brand new. Uh, and so um, that was sort of the beginning of uh, my real sort of hardcore trip into um, uh, startups and, and, and building tech companies. Um, at the same time, I moved out there. Just after I moved out, a friend of mine from college that I was helping and we were working together kind of in the dorms on his startup, um, and I was sort of doing my computer graphics and uh, consulting stuff with him, he was creating a startup. And he needed some servers and he needed some stuff. Back then, there were servers. There wasn't things like AWS. You had to like actually put servers in racks and connect them to the internet to serve web pages. Um, so he actually asked me if I would go and work with him. And I said, I just started with vStore, um, but I'd love to help. Maybe I could make a small investment. And so I became his first investor. And uh, that was my first taste of A, angel investing, but also B, being first check. And that was very exciting to me. So um, I did about a half dozen other investments after uh, that point between 1998 and uh, 2014. Uh, or 2013. And then when I moved to Chicago, I started investing sort of uh, deliberately. And um, or initially, it was uh, actually very ad hoc. And a couple of years later, it became very deliberate. And that's sort of where Lofty Ventures came out of. But uh, that was all over the place. I'm happy to elaborate or, or go deeper on any, any areas. But that gives a little bit, that's a very quick version of the sort of pre-Lofty stuff. Yeah, I guess I'm 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 just curious about your path. You know, you had these experiences, serial entrepreneur working on different ventures, really kind of getting your hands in the weeds as an operator. And you mentioned that first check um, kind of opened your eyes to to the idea of investing and to the process of investing. But when was the time that it really clicked for you that you realized you ultimately knew you wanted to transition one day into a full time investor? Um, and, and into somebody who's not starting these companies, but investing. Uh, how did that sort of that that change happen for you? It's probably never fully happened because I'm still operating. And uh, and when I say I'm still operating, you could you could argue a just with Lofty Ventures, it's 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 a startup itself, um, and probably it will always kind of uh, be that way. Uh, but then B, I'm also refounder of a startup that I invested in six years ago called T Bot. 
And uh, and just for the audience's edification, um, refounder is a term we made up. Uh, it was actually sort of meant to spur a conversation. What's refounder mean? And that's happened probably eighty percent of the time that I've I've said my title. Um, it's basically a new co-founder. So um, so I'm I'm currently operating very hands-on with Tbot. Um, what where I know I'm not the best at is having like the CEO role, right? Like I'm much better at getting in the weeds, like uncovering problems and coming up with solutions to those and letting other people really execute on those solutions. And that is the hardest part of startups, literally the hardest part. And I'm terrible at that. And it's really important to know what you're good and what you're bad at. And I know I am not good at the execution. The execution is what we invest in. So the part that I do is actually not really that interesting or important. It's helpful, it's valuable, but it's not the hardest part of building startups. So I've learned the parts that I'm good at and the parts that I'm not good at. And I really try as much as I can to focus on the areas that, that I excel and, uh, and, and try to remove the liability of the areas that, that I'm, I'm not as good at, which is executing on day to day. And that is very, I'm also very ADHD, like literally ADHD, not like people say that, is it like, I, I you know, I've been ADHD my entire life. Um, and, uh, and that's evidenced by like, I'll just give you an example of going back. We, we mentioned Royce Moore. I averaged 13 extracurricular activities a year when I was in high school and my senior year that included captain of the basketball team, captain of the soccer team, student, uh, government president, you know, just like on and on and on. Um, and, and when I was in college, kind of similar kind of thing, uh, played a lot of sports and did a lot of activities and built this like sort of computer graphics consulting thing on the side. So my hands were in a lot of pots, I juggling a lot of balls and very often those balls get dropped and you can't let that happen when you're the CEO. So, um, it's fun throwing the balls in the air. I'm, I'm just really good at also dropping them. Um, so anyway, um, I'm losing track a little bit of, uh, what the core of the question was. You said, what was, uh, we're, I went on a tangent there. Bring, help me bring, the bring this back, Matt. Yeah. Kind of just the, the, the trigger event over the years or when you finally made oh, that yes. decision right. to move to a full-time investor or quasi right. full-time, it sounds like. Right. So, um, so yes, the answer is I, I am full-time angel investing today. Um, but I wouldn't say that I've ever really made the transition away from entrepreneur or founder. I still call myself founder of Lofty Ventures um, and probably always will. I, I also like I just think that there's I prefer the title of founder to CEO, A, because I, I make a terrible CEO, but I think I'm a good founder. <laughs> uh, go, go ahead. No, I think that's a fascinating distinction and, and you know insight. I think that nowadays, you know, the, the term founder and CEO or co-CEO, um, I, I wonder if there's you know something you look out at the ecosystem today, and is that kind of an introspection that you think more founders should be taking, especially now because you see more startups, you're more involved as an investor, and you're seeing more companies. Do you think that's an introspection that a lot of founders would do well to try and sort of check themselves and realize, I like being the founder, and as you said, I like finding the problems, and I may be good at other things, but giving up that CEO title, I know can be really challenging for founders um, at any given stage of the company's life cycle. Yeah, I, I, um, I think the answer is probably yes. I think the question is more timing. Uh, there's, there's a different kind of CEO when you're just starting the company, like literally at like the idea stage. 
then after you've raised a little bit of money, then after you've maybe gone through like a seed raise and sort of on. And uh, the, the right CEO in the very beginning is probably the founder, the actual person or, or one of the co-founders if there's a pair. Uh, but it's very often not the, the same person five years out or 10 years out. And I think it's important for founders to a, be able to have that recognition and, and be humble enough. And it's not just hum, it's not just humility and, and, and being humble. It's also, what do I really want to do? Like, what, what do I really enjoy? And, and I think it's uh, too often there's ego at play when we're trying to force this like square peg into a round hole kind of thing. And it's a horrible experience for everyone. And so one of the things that I look for when I'm, when I'm investing in founders and backing founders is their ability to be humble and their ability to have that level of introspection and as much as possible, like really release ego. There's a really good book around uh, leadership and, and being a CEO called Good to Great. And I, I highly recommend, I mean, that's more typically for much later stage companies, but the, the principles all really hold, you know, the, the best CEOs, the best leaders it's not an I, it's a we. And whoever is the best person to be in that seat on the bus is the person that you want in that bus. Because frankly, the founder has probably the most equity and they want to make sure that this company is successful because they're going to benefit the most. So if you're not the right person to take this to the finish line, find the right person that is. I mean, it's in everybody's best interest. How do you assess that? I guess at the at the early stages, as an investor, you know, putting your investor hat on. Um, I've heard of some people who ask bluntly the question, you know, do you envision you, the founder, envision a world or a scenario ever where you would give up the title of CEO um, and, and just see the honest feedback, see the honest answer? How do you assess that though at the earliest of stages when you may only have two weeks, three weeks, four weeks to do due diligence, and that time is kind of compressing? Um, I guess curious how you vet that. Yeah, it, this is not an easy answer. Um, so let me take a, a step back. This is a more meta uh, answer I'm going to give. Uh, everybody is like has their sort of superhero secret move, you know, right? like your right, left, right, left, up, down. And mine is kind of twofold. Uh, it's building relationships and building community. And I've known that for a very long time in my life. Um, that's I don't know I don't know how to articulate uh, that part of you know like how I read people and how um, I'm able to suss that out quickly but I'm pretty good at doing that uh, you can always be better I'm uh, I, so there's also to go give another uh, book reference um, Adam Grant's Give and Take is a really important book I think every certainly every founder but everybody that I I know I recommend uh, to read that book. If you haven't read it, it's really important. The basic premise is there are givers, takers, and matchers in the world. And takers, I would, like Trump is a great example of a taker. Uh, a giver, like think Mother Teresa, where they're just looking for nothing in return for just like open love and open, um, just trying to help, right, in every way possible. And matchers are kind of everyone in the middle, which is they're, they're always kind of keeping track. They've got this sort of mental ledger where um, it's, uh, oh, well, I did a favor for him. You know, he's sort of like the godfather. You know, if I do this favor for you someday, I'm going to ask you. Um, and so 
uh, I look for givers. I mean, givers are um, are probably the most important characteristic of a founder that I'm looking for. And um, have I been fooled sometimes? Yes. And the scary part is when you're fooled, those are takers. Um, a, a movie reference, the talented Mr. Ripley, right? They sort of put this act on and they're very, very good at hiding their motivations, hiding their, um, their real desires. And when anytime I get that, uh, I can't really tell where this person is coming from. I can't clearly articulate what their motivations are. That's a huge flag and that's usually a filter and I'm usually out. And I don't care if that's in an investment or meeting somebody for the first time or whatever that is. Life is too short to surround yourself with anything but givers, whether it's in a social or business or much deeper than business investing in a company. Because when you invest in a startup and when a startup takes an investor's money, you are married. That is a very, very hard relationship to unwind. Uh, in some cases, even harder than unwinding a, uh, a founder relationship. So um, anyway, that was a, a little bit more of a meta uh, sort of point, but I hope that answers the question. No, I mean, I mean that's fascinating. And I, I, I love the premise of that book. I definitely am going to link it in the show notes and, and, and check it out. I think it's also a fascinating commentary. I think, you know, I, I've in the past done a lot of reading about, you know, corporate executives and, um just the amount of you'd be surprised um, sociopaths that end up at the highest levels of Fortune 500 companies, um, and it's just a certain type of person that that can thrive and succeed and can and climb those types of ladders. Um, and it sounds like the book kind of touches on a little bit of that as well. And you know, um, I, I think that's just fascinating. I would love to talk about uh, you know lofty ventures and and. How it's different from we've alluded to this a little bit, but you know, at, at its core, how it's different from a traditional venture capital fund, um, and, and your sort of motivation for creating something called Lofty Ventures. You know, not just saying, hey, I'm, "I'm I'm Chris, I'm going to be writing angel checks under my own name," but really creating kind of a brand around what you're trying to do. Yeah. So um, there's a couple points on Lofty Ventures. Uh, the first is this: this all really materialized very organically. Um, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll share a little bit of a backstory because I think it's it's pertinent and interesting. Um, I moved to Chicago to work in our family commercial real estate business eight years ago. It was in 2013, um, second half of 2013. And I never in a million years thought that I'd work in our real estate business. But after doing a little bit of diligence, uh, I decided this is a really interesting and unique op opportunity. My father brought the concept of loft office space from New York to Chicago in the 60s. There's a whole other story about how that happened. I'll write a blog post at some point about. Uh, but uh, be that as it may, I came into the business because, one, that's a very interesting story. Two, he was the first developer or one of the first developers, I should say, but very, very early developer in the 60s, 70s, and 80s in River North, West Loop, Goose Island, all these areas where they were literally called Skid Row. And Abby's about to get, get going here. Abby, calm down. Let's bring her up so the audience can see who's... This is my co-pilot. This is little Abby. Um, We've got a few little, questions for Abby, so I don't yeah. want her to go too far. Right? All right. We've got, got a segment little, dedicated just to her. 11-pound Boston Terrier. She's, she's a, a handful. Um so, uh, yeah, so, so I, I came and, and, and worked in our business because I saw all these really interesting opportunities. My father had a very unique model, and there's definitely a lot of my father in me and his business methodology in how I'm approaching Lofty. 
he never really had investors in his real estate holdings. He had one building that he did a syndicate in and bought them out almost immediately after the project was completed. And his, his friends would tell him all the time, I please let us invest more. And he just didn't want to deal with investors for a lot of reasons. One, he wanted the upside for himself because he thought he had real good vision and he would see things at the early, like he, he had a vision for what Chicago could be and what these old industrial buildings could evolve into is office space. Now today, this is part of why I came to Chicago, the creative space, the brick and timber lofted feel. My father innovated that in Chicago. He brought it from New York to Chicago in the 60s. And when you mix that with the tech companies that evolved in his buildings and started organically going into his buildings, the most notable that maybe some of your older uh, uh, audience members will um, will recognize is U.S. Robotics. They started in one of his buildings in the early 80s, which is incredible. Uh, U.S. Robotics is basically the reason that we had the proliferation of the Internet. They were creating the modems at mass scale and innovating the technology in modems that enabled the on-ramps to the Internet. That's just A. B, they then created the Palm Pilot, and the Palm Pilot was a precursor to the PDA, personal digital assistant for younger people here. And that really turned into the first smartphone. So that company starting in one of our buildings, it was just like the craziest background and story. And so I ended up jumping in and learning our business uh, really from sort of the ground up. And, and I said to myself, you know what? The way that we can grow our business is by all develop relationships with the local tech community. Those companies want to be not only in our types of buildings, but in the neighborhoods that we have, River North, West Loop. And I can attract those, those companies into our buildings. Some of those are going to die because, unfortunately, there's a high death rate for startups. And some of those are going to succeed. And the ones that succeed, and this is the part that I left out, the way my father would grow his business in the past, he had, they had incredible customer service. And, and unfortunately, the real estate business is notorious for really bad landlords, like just awful, horrific, like the scummiest people on the planet. Sorry for anybody who's a landlord who's not scummy, but most of them are. And because he was such a great landlord and his team, we would have tenants that lasted forever. And as a result, tenants would bounce around in a building or across our portfolio. And if we didn't have the exact space that they were looking for, they'd say, Owen, my father, Owen, we're in 5,000 square feet now. Next year, we're going to need 30,000. And so he would go out and find a building, purpose acquire that for this tenant. They'd be the anchor tenant, lease up around them. And then after that, he'd put a little bit of mortgage on and that was it. And so he, he would literally organically acquire distressed assets and use his own capital and then put some mortgage on later. And, and that was the model that I looked at and went, wow, A, that's really interesting. And B, I said, okay, when I come into this building, when I come into the real estate uh, business to work on this project with my father, I'm going to save my own capital. I'm literally not going to do any angel investments. I had done a half a dozen or so between 20, uh, 1998 and 2013. And uh, when I came in in 2013, I said, I'm not going to do any angel investing because I want to preserve capital so I can invest with my father. And that all went out the window when a guy by the name of Lon Chow introduced me to one of his portfolio founders, a very, very early stage uh, uh, startup called Popular Pays. And Corbett Drumming is the founder of it. And Corbett was looking for office space. Lon uh, reached out to me and I said, wow, this is what I thought would happen. I'd build some relationships and I'd get inbound opportunities for, for office space. And within five minutes of talking to Corbett, I solicited him for an investment. So all that stuff that I said, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do any investing, that all went out the window because 
it was an incredible opportunity. I was actually just previously an advisor to a company that exited for $200 million. It was a very similar uh, version of what Popular Pays was. And the cap was incredibly low. It was just a, an amazing opportunity. So made an investment there. And nine months later, they got into Y Combinator. And I call that my gateway drug for Chicago tech investing. Um, over the next couple of years, while I was working on our real estate business, I was doing a little bit of ad hoc angel investing. And I said to myself, I'm only, now, okay, here's my governor. I'm just going to invest in Chicago-based startups because any startups that I invest in Chicago could potentially be tenants in our buildings as well. And so you had this opportunity to get a twofer. Great, um, very inexpensively priced startups with real founders building real businesses. So there was a hedge there. And then we had the opportunity to actually double that up. The last kind of big investment that I did before I decided to go off full time into angel investing was a company called QB. And I did that as an in-kind investment. It's my one and only time that I did this, where we literally took some office space and I made an investment personally into that company as office space. And that company ended up, I, I subsequently was able to, to go into um, an insider round. So I, I re-upped in that. And they just exited in the last year um, this is not an official number. Cranes uh, said it was about $100 million. So, you know, use that as a guide if you want. And I was in their only tier rounds. Um, so that was a, a pretty exciting um, exit. And that was all as a result of our real estate business. And after we sold our real estate business about uh, four or five years ago now, I've more or less been full time into uh, angel investing. But Lofty really started effectively with that first investment here in Chicago with Corbett and popular pays. And, and from uh, 19, or excuse me, from uh, uh, 2014 to today, uh, I just committed to one other, um, which I'm really slowing down on. But I think that brings us to 62 startups and 110 founders. And in 2020 alone, we doubled that number from 30 to 60. So it's been a quite a tear. Anyway, I was talking a lot there. I'm sure there's something you want to get deeper on. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'd, I'd love to dig a bit deeper on the sort of focus behind your investments. Are you looking to be, it sounds like you want to be the first check into most of these companies, uh, if I'm if I'm kind of reading that correctly. So I'd imagine, are these pre-seed investments, and are you really trying to be, yeah, like that first check into the company and kind of the first major you know person to bet on them? Yeah, so my whole thesis, and this has really evolved, uh, probably over my whole life. But, you know, I wrote my first angel check when I was 23. I'm 46, so half my life ago. So it's been kind of a long um, maturation process as an investor, but also it's just getting to know and understand people more. And so my thesis is 100% people-driven, founder-driven. Uh, I look for, my thesis is first check, Chicago, early as possible. And what I mean by that is, um, I'll give you an example. I invested over the pandemic in a 19-year-old uh, uh, founder who is dropping out of college. And I said, you know, this is the craziest idea I've, I've heard. It, is, it feels like it's a good decade ahead of its time. I don't care. I want to be your first investor because you are going to be a rock star. I hope it's this one. I don't know if it's going to. In fact, I don't think it's going to. I even said that to him. Uh, but I don't care because I want to build this relationship now and I want to be the first person you talk to when you're working on your next project and one after that. Um, and by the way, that was, that was Ian Dillick. Um, it was Eshton Technologies. Unfortunately, he did have to spin down that company, which is 
totally fine. And, and he is actually off on to the next project now. Um, and uh, he's working for another company, which actually I think is, is really good um, uh, move for him at this point in his career, but he is so incredible. And when he starts his next thing, I hope to be his first investor. And so my thesis is find the best founders as early, not just in their company, but as early in their career as possible and help them holistically forever. If I can do this the next, if I live, let's hope I live another 30 years. I want to be doing this for the next 30 years of my life. And when you're looking at these companies, I mean, it sounds like there's probably not a lot of revenue, if any. There's probably not a lot of traction. Or are you looking at least for some kind of hints of commercialization? Where are you kind of coming in on the life cycle of the company, even though it is a pre-seed company? And I get that, but kind of from the traction standpoint. Yeah. I, so I'm very atypical in, in terms of Chicago investors. I have no need for traction. I, I have to say. Yeah. My, my, my needs are... See, this is the part that I don't think most investors, especially in Chicago, understand, especially angels and especially at the pre-seed, is that traction and revenue and product and all these things are, are actually almost misindicators, right? Like the, the most important thing that you're investing in, you can't do diligence on on paper. It's people. The founder is, I mean, I'm investing 95% of my energy and time on getting to the founder. Now, thankfully, my secret move that right, left, right, left, up, down is being able to read people and build deep relationships, hopefully. I mean, that's, that's what I think. Um, so far, that's, that's served me relatively well. Um, that is most of what my diligence is. I, I, I will look at materials they have. I will look at their, uh, certainly financial model is really important because it helps me get into their brain and understand how they think. And I can ask questions on that. But materials are really meant for me more to be conversation starters and places where I can ask questions and check their, their math and their logic and how they're looking at the problem. Is their problem founder fit? That's really important. If I'm sussing out, like this doesn't sound like an insider would have said this, Problem founder fit is, is table stakes. P good product and good product direction, table stakes. Those things are like, those are gimmies. If you don't have that, like I, I don't, we're not even really having a conversation. Where I think most investors get caught up is, is in those details when you're talking at a pre-seed or even seed-ish kind of level. But at the pre-seed and pre-pre-seed, I mean, I invest at pre-pre-pre-seed, you know, like I'm literally at first check. They don't even usually call those part of their pre-seed. That's, you know, like friends and family uh, kind of territory. And and you just, you can't, you can't evaluate a company based on metrics at that point. It's, it's a completely different animal. It's for those later stages. For seed to definitely A and later, of course, but it's a, just a different kind of uh, diligence at, at the stage that, that I'm going in. And, and it's not 100% where I'm first check. I'd say probably a quarter or so I'm actually first check, but the majority are definitely in that first round. I would say in the course of the 60 conversations uh, that I've had so far on this show, uh, one of the most common themes that comes up is the lack of the type of investor that you are describing. Um, I think that VCs uh, and I think founders uh, all seem to believe that what's really necessary for this ecosystem. I mean, there are a lot of things to turn this into a, a full-blown hub for innovation and, and you know, get it on track to be maybe in 10 years, you know, close to someplace like on the coast, whether it will be that's, you know, there. But I think most people would agree um, there needs to be more of those first 
check writers when there is no traction, because that's sort of the model in Silicon Valley. That's kind of how they built such an incredible sort of engine, is that companies will have founders that have successful exit, and they will go back and they will invest in other founders who are just an idea and a pitch. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm curious for you, um, what's your diagnosis for why that there isn't more of that in Chicago? Why you are atypical? Is it a risk aversion? Is it a you know industry background? Just kind of would love to hear your thoughts on that. I think it's a, it's a little bit of a Venn diagram of immature market, right? Like, like Silicon Valley, New York, they've had dozens of unicorn exits at this point, right? And, and when you get to that kind of level, you're, you're kicking back capital into the community that then has disposable income to become angels. And we don't, we're just getting sort of at that point. It's just sort of starting to happen. Like a friend of mine, um, Aaron Rankin, who I, I met um, because he was interested in starting to get into angel investing. Aaron, uh, yeah, Aaron's uh, a, a good example of this. They had an IPO. He's got a lot of capital now that, that he's interested in deploying into Chicago founders. And you're starting to see some of those, but it takes time for either acquisitions or IPOs to happen to trickle down and start to create more of these uh, operators that also want to deploy capital. And I think that that's a good combo. It doesn't have to be an operator. Uh, it could be like a doctor or a lawyer or some just like high net worth individual. The issue with that, though, is that it's kind of just dumb money. Then you're just sort of like putting money into startups, which is fine. And we need that. But the problem of the dumb money that is conservative doesn't understand how you invest as early stage uh, angel investors. And so I've actually spent a lot of my time working with people like uh, Jonathan Ellis actually, and I just hosted a, um, a chat yesterday. We're both members of this group, the Economic Club of Chicago. We just hosted uh, a, a, a sort of subgroup in the Economic Club. Of, we called it Angel Curious. And we're trying to get people that are members of that group to learn about angel investing and find the angel investors that are in that group and activate them more. Uh, this past, earlier this year, uh, I spent a lot of time on a, um, a platform called Clubhouse, which um, I haven't spent as much time recently, but my goal of that was A, enabling the tech community to sort of like get together while we were in COVID, B, find angel investors in Chicago and sort of bring them out and, and help them meet other people in the community B, find people or C, find people uh, that are interested, sort of angel curious in Chicago and didn't know where to go. And then D, find angel investors out of market and show them that we've got opportunities in Chicago. And so for that, um, certainly uh, uh, B, but, but definitely C and D, we started doing uh, boot camps on uh, Zooms. It was Jonathan, myself, Troy Hedekoff, uh, Gail from Vitalize. We brought a bunch of... Uh, different local investors together. And we literally were giving uh, boot camps on how to become an angel investor at sort of the beginning and intermediate level. And, and we got 140 people to sign up for uh, that list that, that came out of the clubhouse chats. So it's a long, slow, kind of arduous journey, but we need to create more of these angels that are capable of investing at the earliest stages. And it's really important that they understand the dynamics of angel investing too. You can't just like I've got twenty five thousand dollars. I want to uh, uh, dedicate to angel investing and write all that in one check and hope that you're going to have some, you know, crazy exit. That's the odds of that happening are extremely low, 
And they're not only going to burn you, they're going to create problems for the founder because the, the guy who made the investment is pestering the founder and where's my money back and, you know, my mortgage is due and I, you know, it's like just scary kind of stuff. So we actually have to coach people that want to make those investments onto how to be good angels because you can actually do more damage than good in writing checks. And, and, uh, and it's, unfortunately, it's a long process to learn how to become an angel investor. That's a big part of what we're trying to do. Yeah, and, I, and I'm curious. I mean, I guess is is the biggest kind of lesson or one of the biggest lessons, it sounds like just, um, I guess, introducing them to the idea of the asset class and how risky it can be. And the fact that if you only have 25K to invest, that's probably not going to sort of dictate the type of return that you want. Is Where's the education, the biggest gap that you find with people who first sort of want to do angel investing? Um, I'm curious just like where you guys need to focus the most amount of time at first. I think the first thing is just one sort of getting their, getting them interested. And if, if you have some interest, then, then great. Like that's sort of, you know, like I'm a big believer in, uh, to take a level deeper than the, like, uh, I'm good at, uh, building relationships and, and community. There's like a level deeper than that. And this is kind of cheesy and I don't share this very often, but, um, I call myself a passion guy to help people discover what passion is. And, and for those that I can't help with those passions, I try to make those passions stronger. Um, the first part is just like, do you have a passion for this? If you don't, like, don't bother it because it's, it's actually, a, it, there's a fair amount of work here, even if you're not really being active. Um, and, and in, you can lose all your money. I mean, you have to be very clear, like this is more or less akin to going to Vegas. Uh, now, if you have experience, you're doing this very uh, deliberately and diligently, you actually have huge opportunity for tremendous upside and you can make a huge economic impact too. And a huge part of what I'm doing now, my thesis for Chicago started because of the twofer when I was working on our real estate business, but it really evolved into if they're in Chicago, I can roll up my sleeves and get more involved. I can really help a lot more. I can build more community and enable the founders to all build a relationship, but I can also create economic opportunity in Chicago. And I am all in on Chicago. I grew up here. I spent 15 years out West and I'm back. I'm, I'm here for good as long as we don't fall into you know, absolute despair in terms of our financial fiscal situation uh, and and the crime, frankly. Um, but assuming those things, we can we can right the ship, which I, I think we can and I hope we can. Uh, I'm here for good. And the problems that we need to solve, I think a lot of those can be solved by increasing jobs, creating more tax base, uh, creating opportunity for generational wealth recycling that money back. I can go into a, a really interesting example in that afterwards of how we've already had that happen with underrepresented founders investing in underrepresented founders. It's really awesome. So with Chicago, uh, one of the reasons that you can really be motivated to do this as an angel is economic impact in Chicago. And it's easy to make donations to nonprofits. It's a write-off. There's like there's actually a lot of economic incentives to investing in Chicago startups as well. We've got the new uh, new business venture uh, credit, uh, which is a tax credit for Illinois, you get all sorts of great benefits over and above the fact that we are helping to create jobs at the most nascent level of companies that can turn into massive job and wealth creation engines. So that is a very large part of why I'm doing this. That's a big part of why my tagline for Lofty Ventures is investing in Chicago's future. It's also a holistic, I'm trying to invest in Chicago's future from entrepreneurs, nonprofits, really holistically and build a community around that. 
Um, so that can be a big motivator. But the question, the first question we have to really suss out is, why are you doing this? If the answer is like strictly, I just want to make money. Eh, I don't know if that's the best reason. It's not, I'm not going to disqualify you for that, but there should be some passion and some excitement behind that other than just like, I just want to make money. You can do it, but there's also like AngelList or Republic. There's ways to do that a little bit easier and a little bit cleaner. You don't have to sh focus on Chicago. So the question that I, that I want to always understand and help the investor understand is why are you doing this? Because that's going to inform your thesis and everything moving forward. Yeah, and I, I'd love to dive in a little bit more into the the analog used with the underrepresented founder yeah. um, focus. I mean, we had Brian Lurson from Long Jump on the show back in June, and he it was excellent. I think it was a great episode. It introduced a lot of listeners uh, to their initiative and what they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. um, would love to kind of hear uh, a little bit more about you know that 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 side of things from your end. Yeah, so um, there's an interesting story behind this. Um, so Lofty Ventures, if you go to our website, we just launched this website this last week. Um, uh, we have listed on the site, there's 61 startups, 107 founders. Of the 61 companies, 84% are in Chicago, 74% are led by underrepresented founders. And, uh, and that's, I don't know anybody that comes even close to that. We have no mandate. And we is primarily me. I have uh, another teammate that I brought on. Um, who works with me part-time, Spencer. And we had a couple of interns last year from Booth. We'll probably have a couple more this year as well. Uh, but there's no mandate. It's my own capital, as we've already stated. Um, what I'm looking for are the best founders, really stage founders in Chicago. And it so happens that the best founders that I found, or I should say the best startups that I'm investing in, 74% of those are led by underrepresented founders. And I think that there is some Certainly, you could go in and dig into why is that the case. I don't think that it's uh, you don't have to do a lot of um, sort of mental gymnastics to understand that if you're in an underrepresented class, and I am a straight white male, um, if you're a, a a black female in Chicago, you've gone up against much harder circumstances and much harder, regardless of socioeconomic. Just the fact that there are, without question, structural racist institutions built into the fabric of not just Chicago, but the broader U.S. society, you have to be incredibly strong to get through those circumstances in your life. And to be a founder on top of that is incredible. And when I sit down with a founder and I and they're clearly demonstrating enormous amounts of grit and just um, the intestinal fortitude and, and, and positivity and passion, um, those are very often uh, underrepresented founders. The, the amount of, the, I'll, I'll pick on one founder that I absolutely love, um, who I've, I've re-upped in her business. And frankly, I mostly just front load my investments. I don't usually do a lot of re-upping, I do a little bit. Um, but with Jasmine Shells and um, uh, Denise A, her co-founder uh, with Five to Nine, um, she is an absolute machine. And I remember the first time that I, I sat down and uh, had a T-Bot with her at 1871, I was just going through my mind of like, I can't imagine all the, the barriers that she had to not just jump over, but run through like a Mack truck to get to the point where she is having conversations with investors and already had raised capital and had built a product and like all these things that are really, really hard to do. Also as a black woman in Chicago, like, wow. 
That is really hard. So um, to come back to this, um, a couple of years ago, I, somebody asked, Chris, why do you have so many uh, startups that are led by underrepresented founders? And, and I actually stopped and I said, I, I don't know. And I had to sort of like back into it a little bit. And I sort of realized that I would say that the number has probably ticked up a little bit now that I'm like very conscious of that. But that conscious sort of moment was about three years ago. So I've been investing in, in underrepresented founders since well before uh, George Floyd happened and all these sort of like Black Lives Matter wasn't the thing when, you know, I was doing this. So um, but I also don't consider underrepresented just minorities. It's, it's literally not straight white males like myself. It could be LGBT immigrants, et cetera. So let me give a quick example of how this model is really playing out and, and how I am trying to enable this sort of multi-generational shift in Chicago and enabling all boats to rise. So I mentioned that QB was one of my really exciting and interesting investments because I started with this in-kind investment. I ended up re-upping uh, in their really their, their last round before they exited. There were three founders that all met, all immigrants from uh, two were from India and one from Singapore. They met at University of Chicago as undergrads. They went through the College New Venture Challenge. They placed in it. They weren't first place, but they placed in it. Uh, they did incredibly well, incredibly successful company, exited this last year. One of the founders ended up investing, I think this was his first investment, ended up investing in another company that I was first check in after they went through Techstars. The company's called Oja Express. Uh, founded by Boyaday, uh, amazing startup here in Chicago. Uh, I took one of the founders from QB, educated him Oja. He made an investment, and now we're starting to see that flywheel continue, where we make underrepresented founders successful. Not we make them under help underrepresented founders become successful in Chicago. Have these exits return capital back to underrepresented founders and communities in Chicago, and hopefully we can continue that, uh, that cycle. And, and this is not something I can do alone. I'm glad Long Jump is in. I'm glad Fifth Star is in. We need more of these. There's another group that I collaborate with a lot called Chicago Early with Jeff Eschbach. He's a really good friend of mine. Probably half of his portfolio overlaps with mine because we share so much. I think I gave him one of his first investments, I think, Bridge Money. Um, we need, he's farming angels. He's literally helping people in Chicago become angels at the sort of earliest stage. He's reducing the barriers by enabling them to write very small, I think his minimum is one or $2,000 per check. It's without taking any carry, which is incredible. Uh, it's a really important function for the, the future health of our ecosystem is to have more angels that not only have the, the risk appetite to invest at these earliest first check and first check round uh, stages, but are also able to add value. And, and that's just going to take time. And that's, I think, a function of the, the evolution of the ecosystem as well. Yeah, no, I think that's amazing. I think it's the flywheel I was going to say as you were speaking, that flywheel that you're talking about, you love to see it and you love to see it here in Chicago and being done in a kind of a very Chicagoan way. I think there's a lot of cool collaboration that's going on in the ecosystem and you named a couple of those funds and initiatives. And, you know, one initiative I know that you're involved with is the Invested Forward program. Um, would just love to hear you, you know, expound, expand on that and uh, the origin and just, you know, the mission. Yeah, so... Um... I've been involved with nonprofits for a very long time. Um, that's actually dating back to my mom. My mom was on a million boards in Chicago. And I, when I was a little kid, sick, sick from school, I would follow her to her, 
her balls that she was, you know, uh, preparing to throw and stuff. And so I always had this um, early exposure to um, the the Chicago um, uh, nonprofit world and the impact uh, that that we can all have um, through financial dollars, but you can also really make an impact through your time and energy. And I think there's an interesting um, sweet spot for founders and nonprofits to engage, but there's an enormous amount of friction between them. And I've been thinking about this for a, a long time. And a couple of years ago, I came up with the answer. And then finally, just before COVID hit, I think it was February of, t- of 2020, I kicked off this program, uh, which was kind of fortunate and unfortunate timing. It was like literally a month before we were in lockdown. Um, but then we sort of kicked it off and we were able to continue uh, through Zoom and such. But future, fa- or excuse me, uh, Invested Forward uh, is a model that helps founders engage with nonprofits and enable nonprofits to leverage the the value that founders can can provide to them in uh, their time and, and expertise and, um, uh, and, and mentoring and, and advising and all these really interesting ways that they can collaborate while removing the barriers that have hindered nonprofits from being able to engage with them. And, and a big one is just financial, right? Like when you're talking about early stage founders, most of them are eating ramen. If they're not, they probably should be. Um, and, uh, and, and so my first concern if I'm a founder is they're just going to ask me for money and I, I don't have any money. I'll, I'll worry about that when I you know, had my exit and I've got billions of dollars. Um, so that's one big part of friction. The other part is like, it's a big black box. Like what is a nonprofit? I like, how do you engage with them? Which are the ones that I'd really be interested in? Now some founders probably find some stuff, but it's very ad hoc. I know a lot of nonprofits I'm heavily involved with. I'm, ac- I'm actually even part of a group in Chicago called Social Venture Partners, which, which does venture philanthropy, which exposes us to tons of local nonprofits. But even above and beyond that, I have exposure and I want to give exposure to the founders. And there's a lot of reasons for that. So Invest It Forward is meant to be a model where we remove this friction from the founders. And the way that we do that is each year we select one nonprofit that our 100 plus founders can engage in, as well as their teams. So if I'm a founder of XYZ Startup uh, and that's part of the Lofty family, and by the way, the Lofty family is the founders uh, that are part of Lofty Ventures. Um, we, we refer to them as the Lofty founders. The Lofty community is kind of like out, just one layer outside of that, everybody that's sort of around our ecosystem. So any of the, the Lofty family uh, founders can have their teammates inside of their startups um, help and volunteer with the, the nonprofit that we select. What's really interesting and unique, though, is we tell all of the founders, you're not allowed to donate money. The money is going to come from Lofty Ventures. Each year, we put a $10,000 grant uh, that goes to whichever the nonprofit is that we select. And I tell the nonprofits, do not solicit the founders. You're not allowed to solicit them. The way that they're going to engage is if the founder decides they want to mentor or if they want to advise or they want to, there's other opportunities that they have to engage with this nonprofit, they can selectively do that or not at all. How do we find these nonprofits? Well, in year one and year two, 2000 and 2001, because of COVID and also because of there's a temporal aspect of this, I selected both of those nonprofits. The ultimate goal is not for Chris or the the Lofty team to be selecting, but the actual founders themselves. So this year, hopefully, we're going to kick off our first selection process where a subset, so let's say 
eight to 10 of our founders will opt into a small committee where we would go through and, and they don't have to know anything about nonprofits. In fact, that's sort of part of the idea is that we, they will go through a four to five uh, Zoom session, like kind of boot camp to learn what is a nonprofit? What are the characteristics of nonprofits we want to consider? What are some of the nonprofits in Chicago we should evaluate? And we'll put, put together uh, a long list of say a dozen nonprofits, carve that down to like the top three and then push that top three to the overall lofty family, the 110 founders plus or minus, and then they each have a vote to select who our nonprofit is that we're gonna invest in for the following year, for that, that cycle. And this gives all of the founders a buy-in, they get a little bit excited, it feels like this is coming from them without having to write a check themselves because they don't have the checks to write today, but then they get to invest their time and their team's time if they so choose. But what's really interesting about this is those selection committees. If a selection committee, a member of a selection committee says, you know, Chris, we selected future founders. That was our 2020 uh, investee. But I really got excited about OWLS, Outreach of Lacrosse in Schools. It's an organization I'm on the board of. Um, I go, Samantha, that's fantastic. Go and do something with OWLS. The, the purpose of this is to expose them, is to remove that black box, remove the friction, and enable them to get excited and interested in how I can help and engage with my community. There's a lot more I can say about that, but the last thing that I'll, I'll share is, is that this is really meant to be a, a, a pilot at Lofty Ventures. The goal is to open source, invest it forward to other investors to share with their portfolio companies. And I think that this is a no-brainer for VCs because it's going to be a way for them to differentiate. Because if I'm the next Mark Zuckerberg and you're uh, Kleiner Perkins and you're saying, here's a term sheet, I'm going to say, why do I take money from you? And I've got 100 other VCs that are offering. Well, each year we set aside a million dollars for our founders to select a nonprofit they want to support. I think that's actually a pretty cool differentiator but it goes a lot deeper. So anyway, if there's any VCs or investors that have interest in that, please feel free to reach out. Uh, I'd be happy to, to share more. And that will be on our website too at loftyventures.com. Awesome. And we will link that in the show notes. I think this is going to be a very full show notes, it sounds like, with the book recommendations and the amazing initiatives. Chris, I, I want to thank you so much for hopping on the show and just for being as passionate about the ecosystem as you are and for being as involved as you are. Um, and, and if people want to follow you specifically and they want to you know, follow you on Twitter or what have you, uh, where can they go to follow you and you know, follow Lofty's story? Yeah, uh, I, I tweet a little bit. You could follow me, uh, Chris underscore Deutsch um, on Twitter and then uh, just Lofty Ventures on Twitter. Uh, and then you can also follow on LinkedIn as well. Those are probably the two best places. Awesome. Chris, thank you so much for hopping on Chicago Capital. This is an absolute treat. Thank you so much, Matt. I really appreciate it.